Hi, you guys. No, you're fine. Come on through. It's good to have you. Nice to see you. My name is Matt Mowbray. I'm one of the leaders. See Juicy. One of the leaders here of this uh, community that we, we call With Love the Table. And um, we're in a series right now. We're Advent series. We're kind of moving through the traditional admin, Advent uh, maneuvers. The hope, love, joy, peace, all of those beautiful things that we we take this moment in the midst of the dark of winter to kind of reset and reroute ourselves inside of and get a proper grasp on like when we look through sober eyes at what matters the very most, what are those tenets of our faith? When we gather as a people on Sunday nights and make claims about the things that are guiding our lives, what are those claims that we make? Well, a lot of it is the hope and the love and the joy and the peace. So we're going to keep going in that direction uh, right now, tonight, before I do though, one of the things we say every weekend, oh Gino, my gosh, you guys, can I just tell you right now, I say this before every sermon, but Gino Giovanelli, excuse me, Professor Gino Giovanelli, this past weekend, week, called me with his students at St. Thomas University, they recited back to me what I say at the beginning of every sermon, because universally I believe it's the most important thing that we hear inside of this room, and that thing is this, who you are is more important than what you do even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. We're going to be redundant about that. I hope it does get old at some point. I hope you, like, get so used to it that you can regurgitate in the shower in the morning. Like, it is the most important part of what it means to be a human being, that you remind yourself day in and day out that who you are as a person far transcends the parameters that you put yourself uh, with production, with performance, with all the other things we try to define ourselves by. Remember that who you are is more important than what you do. Please do not... Take that for granted. We're talking about love tonight. We are made in the image of love. God is love. We come from the spirit of love. And that is a redundant conversation. In some ways, we talk about love all the time. Even when we're going on different tangents, we're still talking about love. How do we actually pursue lives that are living into and are rooted by inside of this thing that we call love, inside of God? But I want to make it clear that our desire as a community when we get into this space on Sunday nights and we take on these practices with the songs that we sing and the sermons that we endure and the hugs that we give and the body and the wine that we consume, all of it is aimed at this hope that when we walk out of here, we're going to be a few inches further away from these disconnected articulations of love and a few inches closer to actually embodying our lives as lovers. That is the aim of the Christian faith. That is what, you break it all down, all the different theologies, all the things that separates one sect from another, you break it all down. The ultimate aim of why we gather together on Sundays, why we try to cultivate community outside of these Sundays, is that we can be a people who are known by our love. That's not an original idea that you can copyright to the table, that's Jesus' own words. Jesus, when he is speaking to his, his friends at the end of his life, and St. John writes it down, he says, listen, in the future when I am gone, in the aftermath of all that went down inside my 33 years of life, understand this, you're going to be able to identify the people that are about my work, identify who my disciples are, not by their ability to articulate the creeds nor their own like atonement theology. It's going to be by the fact that they are lifting up their neighbor when their neighbor is in need. They are ascribing worth to others at a cost to themselves. You want to understand who are the Christians in today's society, look for those who love. You want to understand who are the ones who are picking up where I left off, look 
for those who love. Look for those who are prioritizing the work of love day in, day out. That's how you're going to know that you are a Christian. That's how you're going to know what fidelity looks like. It is prioritizing the practice of loving others as you love yourself. It's the same thing. And this is our, our thing. It, it is the cornerstone. Again, like we're kind of redundant about it, but it's for a purpose. Love defines our attitudes. It defines our behaviors. It sets in stone like what the norms of this community ought to look like. And this is why there are prophets throughout history who have been calling us back to this reality. If you actually like take a step back and you think about all the prophetic work that has happened both in the history of our country, but also the history of just our Christian faith tradition, all of it in one shape or another is saying, you guys, we're straying a little too far to the left and to the right and we're missing the point of love. Love is the point. Love is the point. Love is the point. Life is a gift, but love is the point. Whenever we stray left or right, you're going to have your kings, your Mertens, your days, your Teresas, your Apostle Paul himself saying, let's do a course correction. This is why Jesus was killed. Jesus steps onto a scene where the law outweighs the priority of love and Jesus speaks against this, calls for a course correction and says, what we are doing with our heads is not reflective in how we are living with our hands and our feet. We're not treating others. There are people who are being left out. There are people who are not being fed, not being clothed, not being sheltered. There are people who are not experiencing the love no matter how lofty and beautifully you might speak about it. This is a time for a course correction. And he was killed by the religious leaders of this day. This is the work that we consistently will take on. And so tonight I want to remind us of that. Um, and I want to call into mind the wedding text. You guys know what the wedding text is? Somebody say it out loud. What's the wedding text? You go to every wedding when the summertime hits. What is the text you hear? First, First Corinthians 13. It's a beautiful text. And, and I, it kind of runs the risk because we hear it at every wedding. But I'm getting older now. I don't get in, as invited to weddings. Do you, Debbie? Okay, you're better than me. Wow. But you kind of take this for granted, this text. It becomes like refrigerator magnet material, something that you might pass along on the Facebook. But consider what Paul is setting out to try to prescribe for the people. Love is not abstract. There is a way that love moves in the world and it has an actual body. It has a rhythm. It has rules of regulation. Love has power. Love has a backbone. Paul writes, though, this church in Corinth, and he says to them, this bustling church, which everything at this point when Paul is writing is up and to the right. He says, you guys are getting good at a lot of different things. Like hats off to you. Across the board, what I'm seeing on the news, what I'm reading the reports is like everything is going better than I ever would have anticipated it going. But you're kind of missing the love. The bigger that you get, the further that you stray. Again, like you're doing a lot of good things. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not like completely dismissing the good that you're bringing. You're doing a lot of good things that are deserving of rounds of applause. Um, I'm for you. But if you don't actually recenter yourselves on the ways of love, you can get really good at something that isn't actually good for you. If you're not actually rooting yourselves in the point, then you are completely missing the point. And so Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth. And I want you to understand that while his words are lovely, Paul is writing to them and he's livid. 
He's upset. Because the Corinthian church at this time had said that, uh, yes, Christ's table, we don't have ownership of it. It is Christ's table. But we're still going to take um, the ownership that we do have and say some people are not welcome to eat from it. Yes, I know Christ says this is his table, and we're merely supposed to be the medium through which people can access that table, but we're going to put up some barricades, walls, dividing lines that keep some people out, and Paul is saying that's not what this is about. Love brings people in. It doesn't push people out. Love consistently says you are enough, doesn't insist upon bottom line measures that insist that you are not. So Paul's upset right now, and he lays down this sobering reminder of what we are actually about. He goes at length about this, and I don't want us to miss it. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. Break it down. If, if I speak like T.D. Jakes and I prophesy like Kendrick Lamar, if, if God can move through me on demand and make every mystery clear, if I can lay out for you every atonement theory, in every Jurgen Moltmann book, if I give all of my cash to the homeless downtown and then go to Calcutta to serve, if I do all of these things and go beyond those things, but I don't have love, I haven't done anything. If love is not embedded in everything that I do, if love is not the cause, the driving force, the thing that is pushing me to be about this work, then I'm missing the point. Grade A across the books. But if you don't have love, what's the point of getting those straight A's? Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he's asking them these questions because, and here's what I love about what he's doing. He's naming all the different sects right now because yes, like he is talking to the Corinthian church, but what's beautiful about this text, the reason why we regurgitate it and are redundant about it is he's talking to every church that ever was. Inside of this text right here, you have every kind of flavor that you find in Christianity. You have the Pentecostal church where believers are speaking in tongues and they're getting slain in the spirit. And if you're not a part of that church, it feels very different. You have your bookworm believers where they could tell you every, like, they're, they're beyond, like, most of us when it comes to their understanding of what theology looks like when you break it down into the minutiae of all things. You also have, then, like, the, the horizontally moved church, which, honestly, like cards on the table, that's probably what we are. We're very good at the horizontal, need to be reminded often about the vertical. We want to be about advocacy want to be about solidarity, we are rooted in the reality that love in public is justice. Constantly, that's going to be our consistent reminder that we want to offer up to us as a community. You have all these different communities. Paul is not limiting his, his words here in 1 Corinthians 13 to just a church in Corinth. He's calling on all of us and saying all of your flavors have their place, have their priority, but if you don't have love inside of it, you're just making noise. <laughs> How many of us have been wounded by churches that have just made noise? That have been hurt by the absence of love, but like the presence of something else inside of that list is always there. If you don't actually have love, you're missing the point, you are just making love. Then he goes on. He says, love, if you need to know, it is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. 
It does not boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but a lot of other things do. A lot of other things are embedded with that sense of fragility inside of them. But Paul says that love never fails. He goes on and says, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For right now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood. Act like an adult, Paul says, which honestly, every time I hear somebody say that, I'm like, have you seen the adults lately? That's not the best of advice we can be offering out to the people. But Paul says there is a way of maturation that should unfold in your life. There is a movement. You were here at A and now you're here at B. The story of Christians is not this place of arrival. It's a sense where Paul says later on that by day by day by day, I was, I was once at this part but I continue to grow, I continue to open up, I continue to humble myself to become the mechanism through which God's love is born into this world. Paul says, when I was a child, I taught like a child, I thought like a child, but now it's time to grow up. If only it were that simple though, right? If only like the maturation process could be expedited with the flip of a switch. I was a punk, now I'm at this better place, I'm pious. I was crooked, but look at me now, I'm complete. All I did was recite those lines, make a, a showing at that church, give a tithe. I did. Now, that's not how it works, though. So a lot of times when people read this text, a lot of the sermons that you might hear a pastor give from a pulpit like this is they're saying, like, well, clearly what Paul is trying to set down before us is that selflessness is the gateway to love. Put aside yourself. Erase yourself for the sake of your neighbor. That's not possible. It's not actually even helpful. (laughs) You think about like Lord and I were talking today about just our human bodies, physically, the way that our bodies are constantly at work to provide for us the means to survive, the means to thrive in the next moment. You think about psychology, the way that your brain is constantly like distilling the information, the evidence in the room around it. It's doing so for the purpose of your survival. Everything about your nature is about you. Everything is. And so A, it's not simple, Paul, to go from this thing where I'm going to counteract everything that God made me to be, where I put me first and be at this place where I'm selfless and all about others, no longer about myself. But B, it's not actually moving us towards where God is trying to bring us. Consider, if you will, Paul's later words to the Ephesian church. Paul talks to the Ephesian church and he says... Listen, this is not about the, the erasure, the eradication of selfishness. But what love looks like is the recalibration of your selfishness. Paul says if there are thieves out there who are stealing with their hands, let's re-steward them to help others instead. Let's recognize that what they are actually doing right now, like religion would say cut off those hands, but Jesus says let's re-steward them for good. Let's turn that sword into a farm tool instead. 
Actually, Jesus, you know, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you want to know like how to sum up all the laws of the prophets. You want to know what everything is always and only about. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, to do so, I have to have an accurate understanding of how I want to be loved. There's an awareness that needs to be had with how, like, what does love look like to you? But so many times, and I've given these sermons, this is confession, where it's like, just, you know, be selfless. Stop being so selfish. That's not helpful. It's not possible. And it's actually an obstacle from keeping you, that keeps you from actually loving your neighbors as yourself. When you read the gospel story, it's as if Jesus is coming up to you and he's saying, do you know how you like it when people speak positively about you when you're not in the room? Do you know how you like it when people prioritize you when you come in the room? You know how you like it when people give you the benefit of the doubt? You know how you like it when you make a hot mess of everything, but they say, let's give them another chance? You know how you like it when despite everything that you've done wrong, people around you still say, we want you because we love you. You know how you like that? Go ahead and turn around and do that to somebody else. Understand what you want most and then offer it to your neighbor next door. Offer it to the person around you. To understand love, it is all outward, but it takes into account what you believe to be the best for you, and then you turn around and you offer it to your neighbors. Paul is writing at length about this. Paul is talking about what it looks like to be recalibrated lovers. It's it's the turning around, and he says this now. He says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. His point being that like, we don't have all the answers. It's ambiguous. There's a reason why Christian, what was the band that said, I want to know what love is. Wow, okay, he doesn't like music the way we thought he did. We pay him the big bucks for this stuff. There's a reason why, Lynn, you got it? Is it Foreigner? Okay. There's a reason why Foreigner, Lenny, was singing that song. Like, we, we want to live in that. We are, of course, Bill knows it. <laughs> we are in the ambiguity, always like seeing in part, but not in whole. We're not actually catching the full glimpse. That's what Paul is trying to say. But if you break it all down, he says this, then next. And now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Isn't it amazing I don't want to harp on this, so Debbie, give me the cutoff sign if I need to. But I, um, I read this text the other day. When we don't like let it come into us just as like this wedding season decoration, but you think about like when Paul breaks down what matters most to Christians. <laughs> you think about how he's being redundant about what mattered most to Jesus. You think about the thing that transcends all the earth, the thing that you should be known by. This is not like, it's not driven just by a particular sect. It's not just the progressive or liberal wing of the church that, is, that cares about. The whole, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then love matters more than anything else. If your faith is leaving you bigoted and cold and oppressive, leave that faith for love. If your hope has you, keeping, has you longing for a day that is not this day, a sweet day by and by where you can escape the pains of this world, but it's not actually inviting you into where you actually are, leave that hope for love. 
If you are going to a deserted island, you can only take one of the things that matters most to us. Paul says, take love, leave hope and faith behind. I'm being redundant. We need to be redundant. This is the thing we talk about every week. Do you love the way that Christ calls us to love? Do you, you say that you are a Christian. You say that this tradition matters to you and that your participation is important to you. Do your lives, as people who love the people around you, actually reflect that conviction? Actually live it out into the next thing. We are in the season of Advent. And we are thinking about how the divine sends Jesus into the world into poverty, into the lowest of the lows. One of the cornerstone texts I grew up with at Calvary Baptist Church in Roosevelt, Minnesota was John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Why did God send Jesus? Because God loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So as Savona said earlier, that we need to keep on the forefront of our minds at all times, the conviction that centers us that challenges us, that holds us accountable inside of this faith tradition is that people are worth dying for, that love is worth being led by, that we will give ourselves on the altar of dying if, it required, if that's what is required of us to love. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It's not looking for other people to get screwed over. Love insists on the advocacy. Love compels us to solidarity with all people at all times. And every Sunday when we get together, let us be a people who look one another in the eyes and say, this is what we're about. I don't know what you got facing Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, but like we are people who are committed to the ways of love. How can I support you as you go about that? How can I love you as you live this out? Will you pray with me? Jesus, God, you are good. What a beautiful story. Christ is, I was saying this is the time where we do a lot of rebooting. And we kind of, again, look through sober eyes and say, what does actually matter to us the most? To live such a beautiful story of love. God, we're on the final night of your life. You weren't having everyone around the table turn to you and say their favorite things about you. You were on your knees with a towel around your waist and you were serving those closest to you. It's amazing, God. Give us the courage and the conviction, Lord, to live faithfully into these ways of love that you have set before us. In Christ's name, with grateful hearts, we all say, amen. Love is the point. Embodied love, and that's what I think about when we come together on Sunday nights. and We share in the bread and the juice as we practice communion together embodied love we remember jesus who walked this earth he taught us what it meant to love he showed us what it meant to love and one of my favorite moments in the service is when we share in communion together because we have a moment to pause and to reflect and to be reminded of love and what it looks like and how we've lived that love out in our own lives. Maybe how we haven't. But we gather together and we do that. Just as the son of love, the night before he died, sat with his friends at a table and he took bread. And he broke that bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. 
When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup, and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant, when you drink from this cup, remember me. Remember love. Remember the call to love. When you come forward, we'll have people up here. They'll have the cup, and they'll have the bread. You can take that bread and dip it into the cup. We also have a basket up here if you'd like to take the individual cup back to your pew if you're more comfortable with that. But we invite you to come up during the music. And, and together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I will say this though, you know, during that last song, I was holding my, my nephew here, Benny, and um, I was thinking about Benny and I was thinking about babies. That's what happens when you think about Benny, is you think about babies. You think about how he doesn't do anything wrong. Do you know what I mean? Lucky does, but he doesn't. There's nothing he's gonna do right now that he's gonna be like, I will never forgive you. How dare you? I've already collected enough evidence about you to discard you from my life. That doesn't happen, right, Benny? You're about to cry, but we're, I'm your <laughs> uncle, so it's okay. I'm gonna give you back to mama right now. Part of what I was thinking about when I was looking at Benny and I was thinking about babies is, Jesus says, let's be born again. L let's start over. All the different prejudices that we pick up, all the different ways that we discard other people in our lives. What if we were actually just to press reset? Take out that Nintendo disc and blow on it once again and reinsert it. What if we were to start over and be born again with new eyes? That is the constant work that we are stepping into. How do I see people as they actually are, not the way that we've been taught to look? My prayer is for us as a community, said it already three or four times tonight, is that we would be willing to take on the hard, oftentimes uncomfortable work of learning how to look again so that we can actually dignify and love the lives that are around us. Will you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and receive these words from the heart of God? the heart of love itself. Friends, no matter who you are, what you've done, who you love or where you've been. Did I mess this up? What you've lost. What you've lost. <laughs> who you love or what you've lost. Keep your eyes closed. Where you've gone or the places you've been, know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you as is right now are a beloved child of God. You are loved right now. You're enough right now. You are safe and celebrated and seen right now. And there will always be a seat here for you at the table. Go in peace, we'll see you next week.